When I was a young boy, I was at my grandmother's house. We uh, used to, we called her Nanny. That was her name. She didn't want to be called Grandma. I was at her house one day playing, and she bust into the room with this petrified look on her face, and she says, Mark, I've lost my hearing, aid, hearing aids. I need you to help me find them. We spent what felt like to a little boy uh, four or five hours traipsing around the house all over the place looking for her hearing aids. We even went into the garage, checked the car behind all the seats, the couches, even in the bread box in the kitchen looking for her hearing aids. Finally, after a long time looking, I told her, I go, I found your hearing aids. And I pointed at her and I said, they are in your ears. And her reply, no joke, it's a miracle. (laughs) Now, I was a little boy, and it'd be many years before I went to seminary and was well-trained in miracles. But I knew right then and there that the chances are that really wasn't a miracle, right? Now, in our passage we're going to read here in a moment, uh, there's at least two miracles that come to mind. Um, At the heart of the Christian faith is the greatest miracle um, we could ever experience, and that is the resurrection of the Son of God. Now, I know many people doubt things like miracles. I used to be that guy. I became a Christian when I was 29. Uh, I kind of get it, right? But let me at least least put this um, thought in your head. If there is a God, and I know that's a big if for some people, if there is a God, and if he really truly created all things, including the laws that hold this universe together, um, could he not? If he so decided at some point to lay aside those laws, um, could he not do so in order to bring about a miracle? Now, the second miracle that we see in our passage is really just the reality that the passage that we're about ready to read was written over 700 years before Jesus. But as you read it, if you know anything about the New Testament story, you're going to realize, oh my gosh, this was fulfilled in Jesus. The prophet Isaiah uh, wrote this account. And in your, in your bulletins, I, I gave you a little sheet of paper, and it's got like 40 different unique things about what Isaiah says here and how they're actually fulfilled in the New Testament through Jesus Christ. You don't have to like read through it now, uh, what have you. You notice it's folded perfectly for you in the balcony if you want to make an airplane and throw it down at us later. But let's not do that right now, okay? Uh, but we don't have time to go into all of those but, uh, in detail during this sermon. But what we hope to do is, what we hope to see is this important truth. That for all who find their hope in that first Easter, there will be an Easter to come to which we may look forward to as well. Our passage is from Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, 12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As, and, and as one from whom men hide, hid, hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken from the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is the word of God, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If we want to know God, if we want to know his will, if we want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word to us. It is miraculous. Uh, long before you sent your son, you were looking forward to Easter, uh, way back in Isaiah's day. May we now ponder what took place that Good Friday and Easter. May we make it our own. Uh, fill us with your spirit so that we can understand what you would like to say to us this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, DirecTV has a new ad campaign out recently. I don't know if you've seen it, but I crack up every time I see it, even though I've seen them over and over and over again, right? So I thought maybe some of you haven't seen it yet, so I thought maybe I'd, I'd run a few of these uh, back-to-back for you so you get a sense for it. Are we ready there? All right, here we go. Ah, greetings, neighbor. Neighbor boy. Yeah, so we're just bringing your son home. He really loves our wireless DirecTV receiver. <laughs> he should know better. We're settlers. We settle for cable. But let us repay you for your troubles. Fresh milk for the journey home. We live right there. Salted meats. <laughs> no, thank you. Hats then. Don't be a settler. Get a $100 reward card when you switch to DirecTV. Dear, why don't we switch to DirecTV? Now, Mother, we are settlers. I've settled for cable all my life. But DirecTV has been number one in customer satisfaction over cable for 15 years. We find our satisfaction elsewhere. The boy has his stick and hoop. The girl, her faceless doll. And you have your cabbages. And you have your foot stomping. I sure do. Don't be a settler. Get a $100 reward card when you switch to DirecTV. All right, I want you to know, first off, um, I get no commission for DirecTV, and, and I truly don't even know if there really is a difference between cable and DirecTV, but um, funny, funny uh, commercials nonetheless. Now, what if I were to tell you that chances are you're a settler? You're content with far less than you should be. And I'm not talking about settling for, for Cadillacs instead of Porsches or, or TJ Maxx in, instead of Saks. 
See, if you come to understand Easter the way God sees Easter, then you will never be satisfied with anything less than your own Easter to come. What do I mean by this? What am I getting at? See, Easter tells us, yes, that sin and death are real. And it also tells us that God has won a victory over sin and death for us. The empty tomb uh, is, is God's promise that there will be an Easter to come uh, for this universe itself. God's going to provide a clean start for this world. It'll be a world in which there's no more sickness, sorrow, death, or disease. No more Paris attacks or Brussels bombings or 9-11s. A world where you will never be ripped apart on the inside with, with greed or anger or selfishness or bitterness or betrayal. A world in which you will never again have any regret for any careless word or deed you ever do. A world where, where, where all who are present will be so gloriously remade, both physically and spiritually, that the, the life there will be one endless joyful delight day after day. This is what Easter tells us, but we're prone to settle for less. You know, I've had people tell me, you know, Mark, I really don't want to live forever. And at some point, I think I said that at some point. I think I was at a bar and I was being stupid. But um, even after explaining to people that heaven really isn't going to be a place where you don't have a body and you float around and you strum harps and you're kind of bored. I mean, even after explaining to them that, that heaven is going to come to earth one day and God's going to re- bring people back to life in real physical bodies. Even after explaining that, people say, you know, I still don't think I want to live forever, Mark. I think these next pictures will prove my point. We really do long to live forever in a physical world that God has recreated. But, but deep down, uh, deep down we know this is true. The first one is, all right, so um, something appears a little out of whack here in this picture. Can you figure out what it is? Yeah, those are funeral flowers. It looks like that, that man is uh, attending somebody's wake. And, well, in fact, he is. It's, uh, it's his own wake. New York, um, the New York... Post recently had an article and it illuminated there's this trend now where people don't want to be embalmed and, and laid in a box. They want to be put in clothes and put out as if they're still alive. People can walk by and interact with them just as if they are alive. So too this guy, he's got his, his Adidas uh, outfit on. And uh, one last one. It was kind of morbid. I'm sorry. This is horrible. Uh, so uh, this guy evidently was a boxer. I think he wanted to have one last boxing match before they put him in the ground. So anyway... That is morbid. You guys are looking like really horrified there. (laughs) All right. Well, (laughs) I have these pictures to prove the point I'm trying to make, and that is this. We want to live on forever. It's, It's how God has wired us. But we just don't think we can, so we settle for less. We settle for temporary, uh, temporal, fragile substitutes. We live as if our best life ever to be had is somehow to be made in this world as it is in this broken world. And so we chase after career, uh, we chase after that perfect love, we chase after recognition or a big bank account. All the while thinking that it's in these good things that we will find lasting contentment. But my friends, there is no happiness that you and I can create that one day time itself will not take away. And yet we settle But Easter tells us that God has a future to come, and when God resurrects this entire world, he brings heaven down, and all who have experienced salvation in Christ, 
will rise like Christ to a physical, spiritual life of great joy and satisfaction. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he said these words to Mary, Lazarus' sister. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Some of you here have this hope. You've placed your trust in Christ. Others here, perhaps you never really fully considered the ramifications of Easter and what they mean for you. For all of us, I hope that we finish this morning, um, and we finish, as we finish this morning, we realize that we're no longer settlers, but rather we're to be longers, that we look forward to our own Easter to come. The first point I like to, for us to see is that God is not a settler, all right? Um, if you were up in heaven looking down on this good world that you created uh, and you see how messed up it's become, you would probably be prone to respond in one of two ways. One, you would crumple it up. Uh, you would crumple it up like an elementary school art project that's gone bad and you just throw it away, right? Or the other thing is perhaps you would just sit up in heaven and you would think, well, it didn't quite turn out how I liked, but I guess you're just going to have to live with it. Thankfully, God hasn't given up on his creation, nor has he settled for the mess that is in. God's solution is Easter. That first Easter 2,000 years ago and the Easter that is yet to come. In the first verse of our passage, God speaks. He says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. God wants the world to know that he's going to send a servant into this world, and through him he will fix the world's ills. God's servant will act wisely. That is, he'll do the right thing. And God's servant shall be high uh, and um, lifted up and shall be exalted. This is, this is kingly language. The servant will eventually be honored and esteemed. But first must come a bloody mess. In verse 14 we read, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Something was going to happen to the servant that would leave him so brutally marred and beaten up that people when they look at him would, 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 would come to think, is this even human? Then in verse 15, though, he tells us that the result of his body being bloodied is that the nations would be sprinkled. What is that? Well, um, the nations would be sprinkled is that, is that they would re- receive God's redeeming and cleansing work through this servant. In other words, God is saying through his servant Isaiah, um, uh, he's saying, be on the lookout for the one I am sending. It will look like he is beaten and defeated. Yet it's through his apparent defeat that I will fix the world. See, this world is so messed up that we need God to enter into it with the arm of the Lord to come in. You know, not everybody sees it that way, though. Many people think that mankind's going to eventually figure out mankind's problems, that society is eventually going to fix the ills of society. This past week, I was at a charity a fundraiser, and I ran into my hairdresser, and after she says, wow, that is a really nice haircut, um, and after we <laughs> talked for a little while, I asked her a question. I, I said, what do you think is wrong with this world? Ultimately, what is the problem? And without even batting an eye, she said, Republicans. 
She said, if the world were rid of Republicans, everything would be all right. Some of you are like going, yeah, that's right. right." Now, for others, the culprit isn't, you know, right-wing Republicans, it's, well, left-wing liberals or Wall Street bankers or global warming deniers. See, our tendency is to point to some other group out there and say they're the ones to blame. David Brooks, in his New York Times editorial in 2011, titled, Let's All Feel Superior, made this point. Listen closely. He says, we live in a society oriented around our inner wonderfulness, So when something atrocious happens, people look for some artificial outside force that must have caused it, like the culture of college football or some other favorite bogey. People look for laws that can be changed so it never happens again. Commentators ruthlessly vilify all involved from the island of their own innocence. Everyone gets to proudly ask, how could they have let this happen? Or as Voltaire is attributed to his saying, to have said, no snowflake in an avalanche ever feels responsible. We want to blame others or some societal ill for for why the world is the way it is, but God does not see it this way. See, the problem is not out there. The problem is in here. It's in the human heart. The reason why the world isn't the way it's supposed to be is because you and me aren't the way we're supposed to be. Verse 6 describes this condition. Look what it says. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. You will never understand Easter in its proper light until you come to, to see that you are the reason why Easter was necessary in the first place. It's not the Republicans or the Democrats. It's you. From heaven, God looks down, and what does he see? Billions of people who have gone astray. Each person's turned to their own way. And if God were a settler, then he wouldn't do anything about it. But God is saying through Isaiah, I'm not a settler. Easter is coming. Get ready for my servant. In the remaining sections, they show us that Jesus, the servant, wasn't a settler either. The first section is the first three verses of chapter 53. What is God saying about the servant here? Well, he tells us, he's showing us that the arm of the Lord, his activity in this world, is a person. Jesus Christ is the arm of the Lord. He is God's means for writing this fallen world. And yet it tells us, this this section tells us that God's servant, Jesus, would go unrecognized and misunderstood. Born in a two-bit town, the Son of God lived in complete obscurity and poverty. He grew up in vulnerability, like a young plant or a root out of dry ground. And there was nothing about him that would cause you to think, ah, there goes the Messiah. (laughs) In fact, the very people Jesus came to save, most all of them rejected him. Isaiah said that Jesus would have no form or majesty or beauty, that we should look at him and desire him. 
Instead, he was despised and rejected by men. Yeah, I know, huge crowds went chasing after Jesus. It was kind of like a circus show, right? People were showing up. They wanted to see the, the miracles. They wanted the free popcorn, right? Or actually, it was bread. He gave free bread, right? But at the moment, Jesus said, you know, actually, where I'm going, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to the cross and, so that I can rise again. It, it, it was at that point, everybody scattered like cockroaches. He, Jesus was only left with a few disciples um, by his side. Also, the religious leaders rejected Jesus. They should have been the knowledgeable ones who, who should have been on the lookout for a humble, suffering Messiah. And yet instead, they wanted to kill him. They brought about the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Amazing. Imagine if you brought food and clothing to a refugee camp. And they proceeded to take it all away from you, beat the crud out of you, and leave you for dead. Not a very pleasant sight. What if you knew ahead of time that, you, that by going in there that would happen to you? Would you do it? I don't think so. But that's what Jesus did. He knew he's going to be despised and rejected by the very people he came to save. Thankfully, Jesus was not a settler. He went willingly to the cross. Why? What did it accomplish? Well, the next section will tell us. In verses 4 through 6, this this section tells us that to get Jesus right, we have to see him as our substitute. Jesus came to substitute himself, to take upon him our griefs, our sorrows, our guilt, and and our sin, so that we can experience from him healing and peace with God. Look at verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, that's his beatings, with the whip, we are healed. This tells us why Jesus came, and not just to teach, uh, not just to be an example. First and foremost, Jesus came to live and die as our substitute, in our place, so that we can experience forgiveness of sin and newness of life and the promise of our own resurrection to come. Here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. Listen, beautiful words. He said, for the Son of Man... That's what he called himself, the son of man. Came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Some of you may be saying, you know, I don't need forgiveness. That's for these other folks, these really bad, whacked out people, right? Uh, Verse 6 corrects such thinking. Once again, we, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. Every human being who's ever lived, other than Christ, of course, needs Christ. From the vilest criminal to the most pious do-gooder. Years after Jesus' death and resurrection, his close disciple John penned these words. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
My friends, the truth is, the sober truth is that we're all sinners in need of repentance. Sin isn't so much all the little things you do wrong. It's the overall trajectory of your life. Sin is to live in God's world as if God really doesn't exist. And this isn't just for atheists. 90% of Americans say they believe in God, and yet oh so many who say they believe in God functionally live as if he does not exist. So the cross is an invitation. An invitation to be honest for once and to admit to God that you've lived a life for your own glory, not his. And that you have no hope outside of his mercy and grace given towards you in Christ Jesus. And when you do this, when you look to the cross of Jesus and see that he substituted himself for you, then Jesus' Good Friday and Easter become your Good Friday and Easter. Section, the next section, verses 7 through 9, Isaiah predicts Good Friday and Easter. If you recall the gospel accounts of what took place on Good Friday and leading up to his crucifixion, um, you remember that Jesus did not open his mouth, right? He offered no defense in order to be set free. Pontius Pilate was dumbfounded. He told Jesus that he knew he was innocent. Why don't you just open your mouth and settle it once and for all, and I will let you go. Instead, verse 7 was fulfilled. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Three years prior, John the Baptist looked up and he pointed at Jesus and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now Jesus was being led like a lamb to the slaughter and he did not open his mouth. He could have and Pontius Pilate would have let him go free. But Jesus isn't a settler. Three years earlier, Jesus was alone in the wilderness and Satan came to tempt him. You remember that? Satan told Jesus, essentially, he says, you don't need to go to the cross. I will give you the world as it is, and it'll be yours to rule as a king over your kingdom. But Jesus wasn't a settler. See, Jesus didn't want to be a ruler over a broken world full of broken people with no hope on earth of ever fixing it. So Jesus rejected that temptation and instead fixed his mind on the cross. And when the time came, he opened not his mouth and was led like a lamb to the slaughter for you and for me. Verse 8 says that he was cut off from the land of the living. What does that mean? That means exactly what you think it does. He died. He was stricken for God's people. What happened to his body? Verse verse 9 tells us that he was supposed to be buried with the common criminals, like in one big giant pile of dead bodies. But something happened. In the, somehow he ends up being married in a rich man's tomb. If you know the story of Joseph of Arimathea, he was a rich uh, believer in Christ who asked Pontius Pilate after Jesus died that, that if he could care for Jesus' body. And he buried Jesus in his own lavish tomb. The final section tells us that though it was God's will that a servant would die. God's greater goal in mind was the resurrection. In the second half of verse 10, we read these words. 
when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Now, what does this mean? (laughs) Well, when the work of offering himself for our guilt is done, that is, when he is dead, he shall rise to new life. That is what he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days means. Though the servant dies as an offering for sin, he will rise in victory over sin and death. The remaining verses tell us that the servant's uh, resurrection can be ours too. Verse 11, we read, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, um, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Because of the work of the righteous servant, you and I can be righteous. That is, to have our relationship with God perfectly restored. The last verse, verse 12, tells us a number of things, but the main point I want to end on is this. Jesus' resurrection means that one day this entire world will be resurrected and all who trust in him will experience that Easter that is yet to come. See, that's what the words mean when it says, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. See, back in ancient times when a king conquered in battle over another king, the victorious king would get all of the spoils of the other kingdom. That first Easter, God won a victory uh, over sin and death through his son, the servant. And with this victory comes a future in which God shares his spoils. That is, heaven coming to earth. And this will be for all who belong to Christ. That that Apostle John that I quoted earlier, uh, at one point in his life, he was given by an angel, given a, a vision of the age to come and what this day will be like. And in Revelation 21, um, here's what he pens. He says, check this out. I mean, it sounds too good to be true. <laughs> uh, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, died. <laughs> and the sea was no more. That is, there's no more sin. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. <laughs> and then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And then check this out. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. Why? For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Do you remember that scene from Mel Gibson's movie, The The Passion of the Christ? That scene where Jesus is struggling. He's been brutally beaten and he's almost dead as he is. And he's carrying the cross through the dusty city streets. And he stops next to his mother. Remember what he says to her? It shows that Mel Gibson knew what was taking place at the cross. He said to her, Behold, I am making all things new. 
Thank God Jesus wasn't a settler. He kept walking on towards where he was going to be crucified. Jesus settled for nothing less than the cross, knowing that it was God's means for fixing this world, not just this world, but you and me, and giving us the hope that we truly on the inside long for. Let's be honest. We don't want to be buried in a box, and that's the end of it. Easter tells us that's not the true story. The true story is that God so loves this world that he came into it in order to to offer us new life. It's costly. It costs God his own son. But God thinks it's worth it. And the son thinks it's worth it. They're not settlers. And because of that, you and I can experience this hope as our very own. Because Jesus wasn't a settler, you too can share in all his accomplishments. There's an Easter to come for all who trust in Christ. So let me ask you, will you settle for fleeting hopes in this broken world? Or will you set your longings on Christ and his world to come? Do you look forward to Easter? Let's pray. Father, we confess our hearts are often so quick to reject what you've done. We're so quick to say, now that can't be. We're so quick to settle. Father, we thank you that that is not in your nature and that you reach out beyond our doubts, beyond our frustrations, beyond our own blindness, and and you give us life through your Son. Uh, We pray that this would become a reality for those here this morning who have not yet placed their trust in Christ. And we pray this would be a reality for all of us as we walk out these doors, that we, we would look forward to our own Easter to come, and that all that we do in this life would be done in light of that day to come, we pray. Amen.